Please take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 2. So thankful for our church family. I hope you look forward to Sundays as we gather together, as we open up God's, words, uh, God's Word together. Even as uh, Pastor Mike was reading through that scripture passage, I was reminded that you know, part of the sweetness of communion is there's a declaration that we all need Jesus. Now, not one of us is good on our own. Not one of us is sufficient on our own. We all need Christ desperately, and he is offered for all of us without precondition. Uh, there is no pre-work you need to do to be saved by the sufficient work of Christ. Uh, what a sweet thing God has given us in our church family, in the declaration of the Lord's death that we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. So as you look in Philippians 2, let me just kind of get a running start into the text and then lay out for you maybe why I think this is such an essential passage for all Christians, but particularly for us today. Uh, the call starts in chapter 1, verse 27, where he calls upon all believers to walk in a manner that's worthy or fitting with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the central themes of the, the letter to the Philippians, that you and I must live in such a way that our lives, our behaviors, our beliefs, our words are fitting. Uh, they, they are shaped by and reflect gospel truth, particularly as found in the person of Jesus Christ. This, this transforms the way we engage society. If you read in verses 28 and 29, we stand firm together as we share the gospel with others, as we live out this gospel in a society and world that doesn't embrace it. Then you get into chapter 2, and there's community obligations. Live humbly, serve one another, love one another, care for one another, more than even you care for your own self. Then you look into verse 5, having the very mindset that Christ had that led him to the cross. So then we come to verses 12 and 13. I find these some of the sweetest verses in all of Scripture in terms of just how to live the Christian life. If I were to ask you what hope you would give to the person who's struggling to live up to the standard of Christ that he sets for all Christians, what hope would you give them? I had given an example a few weeks ago of several people that you're sitting with who are discouraged and overwhelmed by the call of Christ to live in certain ways, whether it's a person who is struggling with addiction or perhaps someone who's in a domestic environment, whether they're married or have parents or maybe you know, their, their children are constant challenges that press and test their Christianity. What hope would you give that person who constantly feels overwhelmed by the difficulty of obedience? Maybe you look in your own life and you're struggling with sexual purity and your cell phone or your computer is just a constant place of struggle and battle for just holiness. Or perhaps, perhaps you're just not content with your spouse and you find yourself constantly wishing for your spouse to change. And so contentment and faithfulness to your spouse is a battle. What hope? You might have heard this philosophy, let go and let God. As in, perhaps the idea is surrender. If I just give God control, then my Christian life will become much easier, and I need to just rest, and God will move me to holiness. 
Well, let me ask you, is that very biblical? Is that right? Do we just let, let go and let God move us? Does that work? Or maybe I should say, better, is that biblical? On the flip side, we've, we've seen from the example of the Pharisees, and maybe in your own life, the person who is rigorous and disciplined, but seems somewhat faithless. It seems almost mechanical and heartless. I know people like that, whether it's their discipline to eat healthy or maybe how they look at work, man, they're just disciplined. And perhaps you think, man, if I was just a little bit more disciplined, my Christian life would thrive. So let me ask you, the Apostle Paul has just walked us through a massively difficult call. Be like Christ. How do you get there? How do you move from the shabby representation of Christ-likeness that we have to being more like him in a glorious humility? How do you go from wherever you are today, point A, to point B? Let go, let God? Discipline? Hard work? How do you get there? Is it just grit? Just never quitting? How do you get to point B? The text tells us this morning. Look with me in verse 12. I'm going to read down through verse 18, but our focus this morning will be 12 and 13, and in the following weeks we'll wrap up this section. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as stars in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. As Paul's considering the, uh, the possible ending of his life in ministry, he's calling on them to rejoice and be glad in light of God's grace in their lives. But if you look at 12 and 13, he starts with a, maybe I could say even brusque call. And so he softens it and reminds them of his affection my beloved. This is not the angry tone of a coach who's seen his team mess up and is screaming from the sideline for them to fix it. In fact, he says, my beloved, not as, not as though I'm absent, you have always obeyed for me. Just obey now as well. Right? Like, like there's this affection and affirmation. You've obeyed. You, you've been obedient. Don't stop. Right? But he, he calls upon them as his beloved. Those people he cares about deeply. If we just take those two verses, and I think we can, in terms of the logic of the text, kind of separate them, there's this initial call to action. Be obedient, right? He says, uh, to obey, not only as in my presence, but also in my absence. Yeah, there is a sense in which all of us obey better when someone's looking. 
Or maybe that's a natural human tendency. Maybe we don't all obey. But he's saying, hey, you've obeyed in my absence. Keep obeying. But there's this, this word obedience. We must obey. So the question might be, whom do we owe this obedience? Is the Apostle Paul saying, obey me? Let me just encourage you that that's not what he's saying. He's not even talking about, per se, the letter itself. He's saying, this letter is the voice of God. Obey God. Don't confuse obedience with a Paul thing. It's a God thing. Look again in the text. Let me see if I can show you where you start to see Paul really pushing, to, uh, pushing upon them this Godward heart. It says, obey. Now we come to verse 12. For it is whom? God who's at work, and he's at work to help you to please God. In other words, this, this act of obedience is, is fleshed out in the following verses, and he's saying this is a, a Godward act of pleasing God. In fact, you come down to verse 14, and he identifies, excuse me, verse 15, he identifies that we are all children. So, so he uses both clear explanation God is doing something here so that you please him. In other words, our obedience is do God like children. That was one of the first lessons my parents taught me. It was one of the first lessons I taught my children is obey. Maybe you can remember, if you, we have a lot of parents of little babies right now, if you haven't noticed that. One of the first lessons you teach that little child is obey. I can remember with our oldest daughter, the first time she got disciplined. And it was like I had stabbed her in the eye. She was so horrified that I had disciplined her. I mean, she was this sweet little depraved child who thought she was an angel. So let's see, this happened right around Christmas and we were teaching her not to touch the Christmas tree because the shiny lights and all the ornaments were just this magnetically drawing fascination thing for her. And of course, as someone who couldn't really stand, the Christmas tree was also a crutch to stand up with. So grab, pull. Not a great thing to do with a Christmas tree or all the ornaments. So, you know, she got the dad command. No. Super complex. I mean, she, she exegeted that for a long time before she came to the conclusion, no. So she looks at me, looks at the tree, grabs the tree. I brought down the hammer. I flicked her right in the hand. And I remember the look, hand, dad, quivering lip, hand, dad. I was like, how could you? She needed to learn to obey. And you know what? Teenagers still need to learn to obey. Kids in their 20s still need to learn to obey. Parents in their 50s still need to learn to obey. The Apostle Paul challenges the Philippians to recognize that these commands are not merely suggestions. They are not merely the voice of a man. It is God who has called upon his people to recognize his authority and respond with a commitment to obey. I think oftentimes in our Christian world, we think of God's commands as merely a track for what's best or ideal. Maybe perhaps divine suggestions like speed limits. 
We don't look at them as necessary, required. The, the speed limits was a joke for those of you. We don't look at them as necessary to obey. Do you see that God's word has led the Philippians and us, as we see the text, to, to look at these commands as, in fact, the very voice of God for us to obey? And anything less is a betrayal and a disobedience to our God in heaven, who is our Father. So you might ask, well, what does obedience then look like? I think that's the, that phrase that might confuse you a little bit. It says, obey, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation. I think this is what he means by obedience. Work out your salvation. Now, for those of you who believe the gospel correctly, this phrase might, might kind of stymie you a little bit. What does it mean to work out your salvation? Because it almost seems to say, work to be saved. As in, I need to do good works, I need to obey God, and then I will be saved. Well, there's so many other scriptures that, that would uh, conflict with that. That might be the reason for confusion. But let me just point you to Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved, not by works. So, so we know the rest of scripture is telling us that that's probably a faulty interpretation. In fact, that word for work out there, actually by Paul, is most often used with the idea of produce. To, to, have, to have some type of response in light of. So if we, if we read it as the word produce, it would be something like this. Produce in light of salvation. Or because of your salvation, have a production of fruit. So something like this would be the intention then. Because of our salvation, there are consequential or outcomings, outflow from that. You are saved, therefore act according to salvation would be the idea. Peach trees produce peaches. I realized that was complex. Let's, let's see, see if we can do another test here. Apple trees produce apples. Those who've been redeemed by grace produce behaviors that are connected to and outflows of a new position in Jesus Christ. And I think this text, if we work backwards, you see that. In fact, we've already hinted at the first one. So let me just give you four relationships I think you see really clearly within this text. Your salvation transforms your relationship to God himself. This text tells us that God, in, in, in verse 15, is our, he's our father to whom we owe allegiance and obedience. When he says this is how we should act, we act. When he calls us away from certain behaviors, we avoid them. We see those prohibitions not merely as a prohibition, but actually as keeping us from those things that are dangerous and harmful to our spirituality. We look at God's expressions of commands and prohibitions as sweet goodness, guiding us to the path of not only what is pleasing to him, but what is best for us as people. And this is a battle of parenting, isn't it? You don't tell your children to eat broccoli because you hate your children. You tell your children to eat healthy food because, in fact, that's an expression of your love as a parent. You tell your children not to play with the outlet, not because you want to keep them from the joy of electricity. 
But in fact, you recognize there's danger if they play with that with inappropriate tools. This is an expression that we recognize as parents, and so God sweetly gives us this example so that we would know how he relates to us. God does not forbid us from sin because he doesn't want us to know how good the other side is, but in fact, how horrific, painful, and damaging it is, both in our relationship to him as well as to other people. Obey your father I think if you go back just a little bit, you'll recognize that not only is he leveraging that thought of obedience, who obeyed God? Jesus. Was it expensive and did it cost him something? Absolutely. But it led to his glorification so that he is exalted above everyone and anyone else in all of the universe. He has been highly exalted by God. Therefore, the believer trusts himself to the Father. Completely. But it's not only that our relationship to God the Father has been shaped, it's that our relationship to Christ has been transformed as well. We no longer look at Christ as the world sees him, but we see him as the pattern and the king who establishes the ethics of this new society that he's building. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind. That's a command. That's an imperative. So when he says obey... He's assuming we've been reading the text with him. Obey what? Have the mind of Christ. So maybe you can think of this, uh, the text flow this way. God the Father commands us to obey him as Father. And when we say, well, what does that look like? How do we obey you? How do we manage this life? He says, look to Jesus. God tells us to follow Jesus Christ as our compass. That's how we follow. That's what it looked like. That's how we behave in such a way to please our God. It is not merely that God calls us to relate to him as Father and to follow the pattern of Jesus. Look further back, and we relate to one another differently as well. Look back back to verses 3 and 4. Within the body of believers, there should never be selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, what do we do? In humility... We consider others as more important than ourselves. Okay, so now we have like three points of the compass laid out for us. We relate to God the Father differently as we pursue a Christ-like pattern, and we treat others with honor, and we favor them and treat them as more important than ourselves in humility rather than conceit. And finally, we relate to the world differently. Go back to chapter 1. Verse 27, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We do not strive side by side for the faith of the gospel against one another, but in reference to the pressure from the outside unbelieving world. That is, I live a gospel-centric life, a life shaped by the gospel ethics, but particularly the gospel message in regard to those who are opposed to it. Hopefully within our community, that is among other believers, I'm not having to fight for gospel truth. Right? Like, like we agree on that. We should be co-laborers together in that. Occasionally there's some infighting. And that's where chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 push. But he is suggesting, in reference to the society outside the church of Christ, there is a pressure, there is, there is 
persecution in the Philippian church. Some of them are suffering. Paul says, just like I am suffering, Paul is writing from prison. And the risk is that we cave and begin sinning or we quiet the message and silence the witness of Christ. And he says, no. So how I live toward the outside world is also affected. So what does it mean to work out my salvation? What does it mean for you and I together to work out our salvation? It means radically different relationships with the Father, with Jesus Christ, with one another, and in regard to the opposition from the outside world. And I think particularly in light of salvation. That is, one day, you and I will be in front of Jesus Christ who judges us. Look in verse 16. Holding fast, this is chapter 2, holding fast to the word of life so that in what? The day of Christ. There is this shadow that looms over the book of Philippians not to forget that judgment is coming for all of us. Now, if you think of judgment day, that sounds horrifically scary. And it's not that it shouldn't be. Look again how we work out our salvation. It's with what? Fear and trembling. Take it seriously. Maybe a little bit like graduation day. Imagine that our public schools actually failed people. Graduation day would be both a day of victory as well as defeat. A day to look forward to for those who've labored hard and been successful. But a day of of judgment. You pass. You succeed. You graduate. Not you. And so it would lead to a seriousness and sobriety for, for all of the students if there were serious and heavy consequences as well as serious and heavy rewards. In light of God's judgment of Jesus Christ, no believer who trusts in Jesus need worry that they will be judged and condemned. I do not take lightly how precious and important the day of Christ is. The Apostle Paul calls on them to consider it. There is a day coming when you will stand in front of Jesus Christ and he will hold you accountable and reward you richly with eternal rewards if you have served him faithfully. On the other hand, those of us who struggle and give up and quit, if you give in to the lust of pornography, if you become a feisty fighter who's destroying people around you just to get your way, if you find yourself growing unfaithful to the people of Christ and you do not assemble, do not think Jesus Christ takes that lightly or is careless. And He cares deeply that you are faithful to him, that you obey the Father. And consideration of that judgment day motivates someone in something as silly as math. I probably offended half of you, especially you engineers. Something that does not have deeply eternal significance like math compared to the eternally rich prospect of those who've invested in the kingdom of Christ. If math motivates a kid to labor for hours to figure out how letters and numbers work together, how much more should we labor to understand something like Amos? Hosea, to live faithful to our king, to obey our father. 
Now, if, like many you, are feeling overwhelmed, I think there's a reason the Apostle Paul put it in this order. Notice the grace that comes after. Right? He, he's just told us to run a marathon and said, it's world-class sprinters around you, you better win. It's world-class marathoners around you, you better win. And we're looking around going, man, I, I am not an athlete. It's the holidays, man. I just didn't think... I've been eating a lot of candy this week. I'm not ready to run a marathon. So what hope does he give that you can succeed in this marathon race of Christianity in obedience to the Father, following Christ, humble with other believers, and standing strong in the middle of, of the pressures of this world? Look with me in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Let me just ask the reporter types of questions. Who, what, why? of this verse. Who is at work? God is at work. I find this both encouraging and a little bit like discouraging. It's looking in the mirror and realizing how bad it is. You know, it's like opening the hood of your car and realizing this outstrips your knowledge and ability you have to pay for a mechanic. It's that feel when you look at all that God asks you to do and then he tells you God is here to work. Right? It is God who's at work. So, so the who that gives us hope is God himself. So God commands us to do something and then tells us, but I'm here to help. I'm going to ask you to do something like climb Mount Everest. And we say, but who could climb it? And he says, I will help. But God is present in his people. In fact, this is so necessary. You would know this theologically uh, you read your Bibles, you know that the, the man who does not have the Holy Spirit within him cannot please God. In fact, Romans 8 says it this way, that he is hostile to God and cannot submit himself to God's laws. So who can obey? Only someone who's put his faith or her faith in Jesus Christ we do not get saved by obedience. We get saved by faith. But once we are saved, then God comes along to help us obey. So how does, it, how does he do that? Or maybe I should say, what does he do? Look again at verse 13. It is God who works. Maybe I should again, the where question, where? Look in the text, verse 13. Where does God work? In you. Like God is at work in me. God is at work in you. And exactly what is he doing? To will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, those words kind of jam together in a way that almost confuses me. I remember the first time the Lord just opened my eyes to this verse. It was actually in Greek class. So I realized not many of you would share that same joy. But, but for me, it's just so crystal clear when you recognize that word will is speaking to the believer's will. That is, God is at work within my will. I mean, have, have you ever, like, thought, I would really like to be in shape? But then through Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas, your shape changes and it's not changing the right direction. Right? <laughs> like... You look like what you eat, and, and by January, you're like, man, I have no willpower. I am just weak-willed. 
That ability to do what you know you should do, to say no to the wrong things, to say right to the right things, is, is a battle we experience, whether it's the supernatural things that God calls us to, just like loving each other, or being a good mom, or being faithful and reading your Bible. These things are hard tasks. They're like saying no to the good stuff at Thanksgiving. Our will just caves. So much harder than that because there's a spiritual element to it that our hearts without God are not in. And so God says, I am at work. Where is he at work? In my will. In my will. My my grandpa on the Brockside, and you'd ask him how he is doing. One of the one of the phrases he always said, and it, it just kind of sticks, he would say, is forgetters getting better all the time. But, but this, this is my will, and God is, God is giving us the power to, to, to want, and so it's like my wanter means so much work. And God said, that's where I work. I work in your wanter, so your wanter gets better by my grace. Can I just encourage you to pray for your wanter? That God, help me to want the right things. I like the garbage of this world too much. I like to get my way and I hurt people to get it. I say unkind things. I say angry things. I respond with indifference. I don't do the things I should do. God, fix my wanter. Fix it. Please help me. And of course, it is not as though we let go and let God. That would be a wrong approach to this text. God fixes our wanter and he does so through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and also the ministry of the Word of God. God changes our wanter as we're transformed by his scripture. If you really want your wanter fixed, you go to the word of God. And so maybe the prayer is a little bit cyclical. It's like, God, help me to want your word. Then you get in the word and it helps your wanter to want other things. But you've got to start by recognizing that no one wants the things of God without God provoking and winning them in their wanter. Some of you don't want the things of God. You're not interested in it. You just want your life fixed. And even that, God is giving you a little taste and saying, hey, look how bad it is without me. You should want grace. Pray for God to strengthen your wants, your desires, so that you actually will to do those good things. But it's not merely the will. Have you ever wanted to do something and been incapable? Have you ever wanted to accomplish? Like I was just thinking this morning, I would really like to do a triathlon. <laughs> I would drown. I would die. I would never get it done. I would just like halfway through, there'd be like next year a little plaque and some flowers. Like where I died. Maybe you feel like that in your Christian life. It's like, I want to do it. But the doing of it, you're weak. You're incapable. Can we all acknowledge that that is true of all of us? None of us is capable of putting on the strength and the, and the behavior and the obedience of Christ. We look at his example of obedience and we are stunned to amazement by the sweetness of our Savior. Who can do this? Who can follow the steps of Christ up the spiritual Mount Everest that he climbed? Who? The answer is none without the grace of Christ. 
without God at work in our wills. But again, go back to the text. For it is God who works in you both the will and the what? The work. How sweet our God. That he says, hey, climb this Everest for my glory. I don't want to. Well, let me help your wanter. I can't. Well, let me help your doer. God is at work. What a kind God. My dad, about two years ago, decided to get in shape. My dad is in his 70s, and, and he, he, he had a couple health scares that caused him to think, man, I need to get serious about this thing. So he bought some motorized bicycles. <laughs> I knew you'd all laugh. The bicycles only work if you pedal them. And they only support you as much as you, you require of them to get the task done. Because my first response was a little bit like yours. Like, Dad, they call that a motorcycle. They're really not exercise equipment. But then if you get on these bikes, they only work if you pedal them, and they only support you so much. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to get on this bike and go. And so I got on, and I was just like, trying to just crush my brothers who had just also ridden and I was going to beat their times. And, and when it was done, not only did I beat their times, I was exhausted. What I realized is that I was able to push harder and do more and put more effort in because the bike was able to make it so that I didn't fail. You know, someone who tries to go up a big hill on a bike and stops doesn't get as much of a workout as a guy who makes it all the way up to the top. And this bike came along as an assist so that you could work out more and not quit or get discouraged or bogged down. And so for a man who's in his 70s who's trying to start to get healthy, it in fact equips him to do what he could not do without the aid and help. This text reminds me of that similar concern that God has for us Christians, sometimes we recognize we are inadequate to climb the spiritual Mount Everest in front of us, whether it be ridding yourself of the addiction to pornography, whether it's subduing an angry spirit that lashes out at people around you, whether it's the constant irrelevance you feel when you open up the Bible and it's just like eating sawdust. Sometimes we feel like these are things we cannot do. God doesn't say, oh yeah, you can, just try. God says, you're right. You finally get it. You need me. So I'm going to walk with you through this. I'm going to point your will to go the right direction by giving you the example of Christ. And then I'm going to strengthen your desires to will to do the right thing. And then I'm going to give power to the doing of it so that you do what is right as I power you through this. And the Christian does not say, oh, well, in that case, I'll just ride the motorcycle. The Christian says, now I can serve my king. Give me more help in the doing. Help my will not to give up. God, give me strength of will, strength of ability so I can work for you. The sweetness of this text to me is so compelling. I think probably for the last 20 years, if I ever sign with a Bible reference, this is the reference I put. What can you do without God? Nothing. There is none who pleases God. There is none who seeks after God, Romans 3 tells us. 
But God is not pleased with people who just sit in their spiritual lazy boy. Monday morning quarterbacks who criticize the church, who do nothing for the cause of God and say, well, I mean, if God really wanted me to do something, he would get me there. No, he tells you exactly what you must do. Obey. He doesn't leave you discouraged or unequipped, he says, but I will be there to help you want and to help you work. I want you to look again at this text just in case we've missed the press that Paul gives us. The end of verse 12. What are we to do? We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Come to verse 13. For it is God who works, both who will and to work. So, so there's like this Oreo cookie of theology here. Right. You are commanded to work. Your hope is because God is at work. So therefore, work. And in all of that, there's a lot more sweet theology where God reminds us that he is at work in our wanter. He has given us the pattern of Christ who also was given a commission to obey. This should affect our community of believers. This should change the way we stand within a world that is dark so that we shine as stars. God is so good. Let me just encourage those of you who are discouraged. God has never met an addiction, a pattern of behavior, a personal quirk or attribute of personality that leads you to sin that he will not equip you to defeat, to battle against, metaphorically to climb that spiritual Everest. Don't be like me who thinks that Running a triathlon would be good. And then immediately it's like, nah. Spiritually, I don't know what's in front of you. I don't know what discouragements you face. I don't know why you might quit. I don't know what has the cloud of quitting hanging over your head. I don't know if it's maybe just indifference that you don't see how much you're struggling. I don't know if you're pressing and pressing and pressing. But wherever you're at, remind yourself this. God is at work. He is helping my wanter, strengthening me to do what pleases him. And I would just point out as one last note as we exit this text, there is a God-centeredness to the Christian life. Obey. With fear and trembling, because you'll stand in judgment one day by this God who helps you. And he is at work in you not merely just to do stuff, but to do stuff that for his good pleasure means it pleases him, and it's good. Why is God doing this? Because he wants you to please him, and it's good. It's good. That means it does good to us, and it is good, intrinsically good. He does not want you to do bad stuff. I I have made my brothers look bad. They deserve every bit of it. I can remember when I was little, they do all sorts of cruel things. I wish I could share with you all the bad ways. They're horrible people. But, but they would be the type, because this is literally what they did, that would trick me into touching the electrified fence that kept the cows in the pasture. 
I don't think of myself as gullible, but probably that's just proof I am gullible. God is not calling us to obey so that we touch stuff and get zapped. He's calling us to obey because it's good. There's no fraud or harm that God presents to his people. He calls us to follow him in green pastures. And God is good. God does not make obedience easy by lowering the standard. He makes obedience possible by empowering his people. Often we give counsel to others who are struggling by lowering the expectations of Christ rather than raising them to understand the empowerment of God's grace to overcome. God is holy, and he calls us to pursue his holiness, and then he helps us get there by shaping our will and strengthening us to do it. May God be glorified by people who look more and more like his precious son, Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we ask that you be pleased with your people as the Holy Spirit works and as we seek to look more like Jesus Christ. Amen.